1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China has developed a reputation for lending easy money in Africa to huge projects such as railways and ports, but many of them have turned into costly flops, and China is starting to tighten up its purse strings. And for centuries, tribes in Colombia have taken a hallucinogenic brew called ayahuasca in all-night ceremonies. Now, tourists want in on the visions, and some shamans are all too happy to oblige. But first... For weeks, President Donald Trump had promised raids to arrest and deport undocumented families living in America. Over the weekend, agents from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, were expected to target at least 2,000 migrants across 10 major cities.
2: It starts on Sunday, and they're going to take people out, and they're going to bring them back to their countries.
1: But there was little evidence of that. What drew more attention was Mr. Trump's Twitter tirade against four Democratic congresswomen who have vocally criticised his immigration policies. The kind of crackdown Mr. Trump promised didn't come to pass, but it still might, and that will keep plenty of migrants fearful. This is the second
3: time that the Trump administration has pre-announced that there'd be widespread immigration raids leading to deportations. John Prideau is our United States editor. That's in turn created a lot of fear in corners of America where there are a lot of undocumented migrants. Only the raids didn't really materialize in the end. There was some fairly routine immigration enforcement, but not the sort of mass roundups that had been trailed in advance.
1: And why do you suppose that is? Why didn't the administration fulfill its promise to to really go for these people?
3: I think there are two reasons. The first one is an operational one in the sense that the Administration had said that it was going to target two thousand migrants who had been sent final orders for removal for failing to appear in court, and that suggests that ICE can sort of surgically target undocumented migrants out of the large overall population of undocumented people in America. There are about ten and a half million people we think in America who don 't have the papers required to stay there and Picking out just 2,000 people from that population when you don't necessarily know where they live is an extremely hard thing to do. I think there was a certain element of kind of promising something that couldn't be delivered. And I think the second thing is pre-announcing these kind of raids is pretty unhelpful from the point of view of Immigration and Customs Enforcement and their officers who go around. They don't have the legal power to go and break down people's doors, so they have to try and sort of intercept people going about their daily business. If those folks are forewarned, then they can stay at home or they can go stay somewhere else at any rate,
1: not open their doors to ICE officers. So why did the administration point out that it was going to do this, to to trail this? The Trump administration has a few
3: aims here. One is to signal toughness to the domestic audience, in particular, Donald Trump's voters and existing supporters who've been promised tough immigration enforcement. Another thing is that the Trump administration wants to deter potential migrants from Central America from making the journey north, and rumours about draconian immigration roundups might be helpful for that. And the third point is that if you take the Trump administration literally, they would like Democrats in Congress to rewrite asylum law. And before The first round of raids were announced and then didn't happen. The administration said, okay, well, we're going to delay these raids to give Democrats in Congress an opportunity to rewrite asylum law in America. And if
1: they don't do that, then the raids will go ahead. So let's take those three points in turn. As far as playing to a domestic audience, do you think that Mr. Trump's plan is succeeding?
3: I think his domestic audience that he's interested in here, which is not the whole of America, it is the you know 40 odd percent of American voters who approve of him. I think those people will forgive him,
1: even if these raids never materialize. And what about the, the degree to which talking these things up actually deters migrants from coming into the country in the first place?
3: That's very hard to know because there are all sorts of other factors that affect the flow of migrants. There's often a misperception encouraged by the president that these people are coming from Mexico. They're not coming from Mexico. They're transiting through Mexico. They're coming from Central America. And one thing that has a big effect is just the weather border crossings tend to drop over the summer months when it's very, very hot. And so we ought to see a decline. But that decline, I mean, you could attribute it to President Trump's deal with Mexico for them to get tougher on their border enforcement. You could attribute it to some of this kind of rhetoric that we've seen. You could attribute it to some of the kind of cruelty at the border with the separation of children and so forth, or it might just be the
1: weather, and it's probably the weather. And, and what about spurring Democrats to, to change asylum law? Is that, does it look to you as if that, that's actually having any effect?
3: No, it doesn't. A, Democrats don't particularly want to help him out on immigration law. And B, asylum law, which is the particular part of the immigration law that he, he now says he wants change, is
1: incredibly fiddly, um, but it's very hard to know what to put in their place. It's easy to imagine that there is some connection between the the raids that weren't this weekend um, and these incendiary tweets that the president has has sent out over the weekend, attacking four Democratic congresswomen who are known for their opposition to his his policies on migrants. Do, do you see a link there?
3: I think there might be a link. I mean, one thing that the president is very good at is using his Twitter feed to distract people. So you could imagine um, amid these ICE raids that now promise twice, you know, not materializing, getting people talking instead about the president attacking a group of Democratic, non-white Democratic congresswomen could be quite helpful. So I I think there may be
1: an element of that going on. So these big advertised raids didn't happen this weekend. And in the meantime, what are the knock-on effects of creating this kind of climate of fear for, for those migrants?
3: I think a permanent sense of insecurity, a permanent sense of a life that feels like it's established, well-established in America, could be vaporised at any moment. I mean, it's important to remember that though the raids that were announced were targeted on people who crossed the border relatively recently, in fact, most of the undocumented population in America has been in the country for a really long time. And what the country is trying to deal with in terms of immigration enforcement here is the hangover of a failure to deal with um, immigration, a failure to pass sensible immigration laws that goes back decades. And so you have a very large population of undocumented people, many of whom have been in the country for 10, um, 15 years, many of whom have American children and are in kind of most ways, um, apart from the very big way of having the crucial piece of paper, you know, consider themselves American. And so for those people, the constant threat of having their families broken up um having their, you know, themselves sent home to a
1: country that they left behind long ago, um, I'm sure is very distressing. But that is exactly what President Trump wants to create, that climate of fear, to, to make those people feel unwelcome, to feel fearful. That will look like a, a rhetorical win. Th- that's correct.
3: I mean, there's no getting around the fact that immigration enforcement, sort of by its nature, is somewhat inhumane and if you take the arguments of people like Stephen Miller in the White House seriously then making the immigration system kind of hum- inhumane and making people fearful is is an aim rather than something to be avoided because as you say it could prove more effective i think it's true that there's no really humane way to enforce immigration law. Enforcing immigration law by its nature is somewhat cruel, and you can see this by looking at how Europe does it. Every summer, we have large numbers of people drowning in the Mediterranean, trying to cross from North Africa into Europe. And Europe has come up with this solution, which essentially involves outsourcing immigration enforcement to countries like Libya and Turkey where standards on uh, human rights are considerably lower. So it's not obvious that's a kind of better way to do it. Every rich country
1: is struggling with this at the moment. Thank you very much for your time, John. Thanks, Jason.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter,
1: In the past decade, numerous African countries have seen their infrastructure improve. Roads and railways have stretched across whole countries. Vast ports have been built, and new airports are opening up. Often, the financing for these transformative projects has come from China. The country has less restrictive standards for loans than rich Western countries or Western-backed organizations like the World Bank. But Chinese credit may be getting harder to come by, as some African countries are discovering. The Kenyan president got a surprise recently.
2: So in April, Uhuru Kenyatta went to China. He didn't state specifically what he was going to do, but various people around him had said that he was going with the intention of securing a loan from China for the third phase of Kenya's new railway. Adrian Blomfield reports
1: for The Economist from Kenya.
2: So he left in... A uh, uh, high expectation before i begin let me just convey the warm greetings and best wishes from the people and the government of the republic of kenya to you and the people as well as the government of the people's republic of china the kenyan ambassador to china said that she believed that it was going to be a done deal we were expecting a big announcement that the third phase of the railway would be going ahead instead we heard nothing. Mr. Kenyatta went very quiet indeed.
1: And, well, what had gone wrong?
2: Well, it seems that the Chinese said no, and Mr. Kenyatta seemed to take it very badly. He disappeared from public sight. So, a lot of Kenyans assumed that he was uh, buried away in some kind of funk. The Kenyans are very, very fond of Twitter, and uh, they made great hay of this. Uh, we saw Uh, missing person posters appearing on the internet asking for information about a five-foot-eight African male last seen in Beijing. All of this was appearing uh, under the hashtag find President Uhuru. So beyond the Twitter fund, though, I I imagine that people must have been
1: quite surprised to hear that the, the railway hadn't been funded.
2: Yes, and I think there was some dismay. There's never been An infrastructure project in Kenya as big as this since independence from Britain, it also symbolised the blossoming of a new relationship with China. There was a a terrific opening ceremony to see off the first train, singing and dancing. And an envoy for the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, uh, was at the ceremony. He sent his warm regards from the president expressing delight that this great development was finally underway. It had been completed and it was all systems to go.
1: And, and these are a kind of scenes that have played out elsewhere in Africa, right? The, the the Belt and Road Initiative is is a global one, so Kenya can't be the 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 only place where China has been investing.
2: No, indeed, since... 2000, according to the China Africa Research Initiative, uh, more than, uh, well, some $143 billion has been lent out by uh, China to African states. And African states very much welcomed this new relationship with China, the ever giving godfather. China did not have a colonial history in Africa there was a a, a feel that the relationship came without baggage. And indeed, when uh, President Xi promised another $60 billion in aid and loans to the continent last year, he was careful again to emphasize that it came with no political strings attached. Well, I mean, that does
1: sound almost too, too good to be true.
2: It was too good to be true, or it seems to be getting that way. First of all, there is growing caution, not often publicly voiced by African leaders. They don't want to bite the hand that feeds. But there is growing caution about where this relationship is going. And certainly among African publics, there's there's much greater division. There is there You often hear accusations that China is actually just another neo-imperialist that is coming to exploit African resources. Something like a million Chinese people have moved to Africa and often rightly or wrongly, inaccurately or accurately, a lot of Africans say they are taking the jobs that we should be doing. So there's also this fear that is talked about more in the West, that China is engaging in what people called debt trap diplomacy. In other words, China is deliberately lending too much money to African countries in the hope that they will not be able to pay it back, and then they'll be able to seize assets.
1: So what about that suggestion then that that, that China is uh, providing a a sort of sweetheart loan deals and then when they go south, then then China gets to seize those
2: assets? I think broadly there have been one or two issues for concern. What happened in Hambantota in Sri Lanka, where uh, Sri Lanka essentially surrendered the port uh, after it failed to repay loans, spooked a number of African leaders. And there are one or two places in Africa that sort of fit into that theory. Uh, There are 3,000 projects that China has financed around the world, though, and it doesn't really make much sense uh, for China to try and seize all of those as assets in return for giving out dodgy debt. It wouldn't make financial sense.
1: Well, where does that leave us, though, with the the case of Kenya, where they had put in quite a bit of money but then pulled out at the last?
2: I think a lot of the negative publicity that China has got on debt-trap diplomacy has made them think... Twice. They are in danger of squandering political capital in Africa. So I think a more realistic approach is now being taken in terms of some of the projects that China is financing. The standard gauge railway in Kenya has not done terribly well. It suffered from overly ambitious projections. It's carrying far less freight than it was meant to do. I think China has looked at this and they're realizing that whatever happens this railway looks very unlikely ever to make money
1: and so your read of this is that china might be rethinking its uh, sort of willy-nilly granting of no strings attached loans
2: yes and there hasn't been enough due diligence in indeed the main chinese insurance company admitted that when he he said that china had essentially had to write off a billion dollars um, in losses for a railway between djibouti and Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. The second aspect of this is there has been a tendency not to appreciate the scale of corruption. Huge amounts, according to critics, have been siphoned off this railway. China are asking much tougher questions. So according to government aides that I spoke to, when Mr. Kenyatta was in Beijing, when he met uh, his Chinese counterparts, they were asking questions about how are you going to manage corruption? how are you going to be more transparent on these um, types of questions? They even wanted to know, in terms of his political intentions, whether he was going to stand again in 2022. And what those aides said was it felt like talking to the World Bank. So China is really pivoting in terms of its lending, if this is borne out elsewhere, closer to Western standards. And I think a lot of people would say that is good news.
1: Adrian, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Jason.
1: In Colombia, ayahuasca has been used for centuries as part of sacred indigenous traditions. The medicinal plant can cause intense hallucinations and spiritual experiences. It's attracted increasing numbers of tourists who come to the Amazon to take part in the rituals. But their participation has also put pressure on a unique cultural heritage that indigenous tribes are fighting to preserve.
0: They have their own wooden shack. It's called the House of Remedies, and that's where the ayahuasca ceremony takes place.
1: Mariana Palau writes about Colombia for The Economist. She saw an ayahuasca ceremony on a reserve of the indigenous Coriguaje tribe.
0: It's a night-long ceremony, and people hang hammocks in the shack they walk up to the shaman. They call these shamans taitas. And the taita gives each participant of the ceremony a cup with a bit of the brew inside. And then every participant takes it, drinks it, and then goes back to their hammocks where they kind of retreat. Now, a lot of them, given to, like, these very powerful hallucinations, and then closer to dawn, the last part of the ceremony takes place, and it's called the healing part of the ceremony. The taita sings to expel evil spirits, and they also rub their backs with what is called a waira. So it's basically just a bunch of leaves.
1: And, and so these ceremonies are, are quite uh, intimately connected with these indigenous tribes.
0: Yeah, so in the Amazon region, there's a lot of indigenous tribes that have taken ayahuasca for hundreds of years, and it's very much a part of, of their culture. So some tribes, for example, take it uh, to connect with the spirit world, and they consult with the spirits.
1: Well, not just an essential part of the culture, but also seemingly kind of an existential part of, of, some, of some of these tribes. But how has it become a draw for tourists?
0: So the thing with ayahuasca is that people experience some very, very out-of-body experiences while they are taking the brew. And they're they're very spiritual experiences. People report spiritual awakenings. And there are studies that suggest that its active component, which is DMT, might help with addiction or PTSD or even depression. So because of these very powerful components of ayahuasca... It's had a lot of appeal outside of these indigenous tribes in the West, so to say. As ayahuasca sort of moves out from these very specific contexts that you could find within these indigenous tribes, and it transforms, the rituals around it transform. So, for example, young hippies are combining the ceremony with non-Amazonian elements like sweat lodges, Or yoga, for example.
1: And has that in in turn uh, transformed the way it's perceived uh, um, um, among among the would-be users or uh, among the indigenous tribes?
0: Well, I would say it's given it a bad reputation. Mostly because there's a lot of dodgy shamans that are now all of a sudden coming into scene and giving ayahuasca, and they don't really know what they're doing. They're doing things like infusing the brew with scopolamine, and that's a plant that basically makes people lose their will. There's also a lot of reports of sexual abuse during ayahuasca ceremonies And reports of deaths, people that have actually died when they have been taken ayahuasca.
1: And what about the local tribes that are trying to do this legitimately? How is this impacting them?
0: I think the commercialization of ayahuasca has gotten out of hand. I spoke to Ernesto Evanjuanoi, and he's the president of this organization called the (laughs) Umillac. What it basically does is gathers all of the taitas of the Colombian Amazon's ayahuasca tribes. And he told me that they were nothing without ayahuasca. These tribes cannot survive without it because it's such an essential part of their culture. Mm. The Umiyak established guidelines as to how to use ayahuasca. So They include, for example, a promise not to scam or sexually abuse people who take part in ayahuasca ceremonies. But also keep in mind that these are communities that are very poor. And sometimes people come offering them $30 to $50, maybe even $70 for an ayahuasca ceremony. And because they have no other way of making a living, they start to sell their own medicine the same thing happened with coca by the way they tried to sell their medicinal plant because they had a need if the commercialization of ayahuasca gives it such a terrible reputation as is the case with coca then these indigenous tribes might lose their brew which is so essential to their culture
1: mariana thank you very much for your time
0: thank you so much